Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a top-selling beer title, what would your top-selling beer title be? Mine would be Scrubbing the Poop Dick. If you listen to last week's episode, which is episode 80, No Fear, then you'll be primed and ready because we're diving right back into the same novel, Gay Neck, The Story of a Pigeon by Don Gopal Mukherjee. Just a brief overview if you haven't caught that episode. Essentially, Gay Neck is a pigeon from the early 1900s. The story is based off the author's boyhood, and he and his community participate in a pigeon competition every year. Everything else, I think, will be explained in the excerpt, and if not, then I'll touch on it afterward. By now, January had come, with cool weather and clear skies, and the competition for pigeon prizes began. Each man's flock was tested on three points, namely teamwork, long-distance flight, and flight under danger. We won the first prize on the first point, but I am sorry to say that owing to a sad mishap which you shall learn of in its proper place, my pigeons could not compete for the other two. This is the nature of the teamwork competition. The various flocks of pigeons fly way up from their respective homes. Once they are beyond the reach of whistling and other sounds that indicate their master's voice, the diverse flocks coalesce. Then, spontaneously, they agree to fly under the leadership of a pigeon whom they consider fit. All this happens up in the air where pigeon wit and pigeon instinct prevail. And the bird who flies forward and is allowed to lead does so without ever realizing the nature and the reason of the honor that has been bestowed on him. The temperature dropped to 45. It was a fine cold morning for our part of India. In fact, the coldest day of the year. The sky above, as usual in the winter, was cloudless and remote, a sapphire intangibility. The city houses, rose, blue, white, and yellow, looked like an army of giants rising from the many-colored abyss of dawn. Far off, the horizons burned in a haze of dun and purple. Men and women in robes of amber and amethyst, after having said their morning prayers to God, were raising their arms from the housetops in gestures of benediction to the rising sun. City noises and odors were unleashed from their kennels of the night. Kites and crows were filling the air with their cries. Over the din and clamor, one could yet hear the song of the flute players. At that moment, the signal whistle blew that the contest had begun, and each pigeon fancier waved from his roof a white flag. Instantly from nowhere, innumerable flocks of pigeons rose into the sky. Flock upon flock, color upon color, their fluttering wings bore them above the city. Crows and kites, the latter of two species, red and brown, fled from the sky before the thundering onrush of tens of thousands of carriers and tumblers. Soon all the flocks, each flying in the shape of a fan, circled in the sky like so many clouds caught in large whirlpools of air. Though each moment they ascended higher, for a long time each owner of a flock knew his own from the others, and even when at last the separate flocks merged into a single unit and flew like a solid wall of wings, I could pick out by the way they flew Gaynek, Hira, Jahor, and half a dozen others. Each bird had personal characteristics that marked him as he flew. When any owner wished to call the attention of any one of his pigeons, he blew a shrill whistle with certain stops as a signal. That attracted the bird's attention if he was within reach of the sound. At last, the whole flock reached such a height that not even the blast of a trumpet from any pigeon fancier could reach it. Now they stopped circling in the air and began to move horizontally. The competition for leadership had begun. 
As they maneuvered from one direction of the heavens to another, we, the owners below, had to look up intently in order to make sure of the characteristics of the one whom the pigeons had trusted to lead their flight. For a moment, it looked as if my Johor would lead, but hardly had he gone to the head of the flock when they all turned to the right. That brought about a confusion in the ranks, and, like horses on a race course, all kinds of unknown pigeons pushed forward. But in time, each of them was pushed back by the rest of the flock. This happened so often that we began to lose interest in the contest. It looked as though some nondescript pigeon would win the coveted leadership prize. Now suddenly rose the cry from many housetops, Gay neck! Gay neck! Gay neck! Yes, many of the pigeon fanciers were shouting that name. Now I could see, without the slightest shadow of error, my own bird at the head of the vast flock, a leader among leaders, directing their maneuvers. Oh, what a glorious moment. He led them from horizon to horizon, each time rising a few feet higher, till by eight in the morning not a pigeon could be seen in any corner of the sky. Now we furled our flags and went downstairs to study our lessons. At midday, when again we went above, each man could see the entire wall of pigeons descending. Lo, Gaynek was still leading. Again rose the shout, Gaynek, Gaynek. Yes, he had won the palm, for he had remained in leadership for more than four hours and was coming down as he had gone up, a master. Now came the most dangerous part of the flight. The commander of the vast concourse gave the order to disband, and flock after flock split from the main body, each separate flock flying away to its home, but not too quickly. Some must guard the sky above them while the others flew homeward. Gaynek held my little flock in a kind of umbrella formation to protect the rear of the receding pigeons belonging to other contestants. Such is the price of leadership, the other name of self-sacrifice. But now began a horrible climax. In India, during the winter, the buzzards called baz come south. They do not eat carrion. Like the eagle and the hawk, the baz generally eats what he kills with his own talons. They are mean and cunning. I think they are a class of low-born eagles, but they resemble kites, although their wings are not frayed at the ends. They fly in pairs slightly above a flock of kites, and are hidden by them from their prey, which, however, they can see in this way without ever being seen themselves. On that particular day, just when Gaynek had won the leader's laurels, I perceived a pair of baths flying with a flock of kites. Instantly, I put my fingers in my mouth and blew a shrill whistle. Gaynek understood my signal. He redistributed his followers, he himself leading the center, while Jahor and Hira he ordered to cover the two ends of the crescent, in which shape the flock was flying. The entire group held together as though it were one vast bird. They then began to dip down faster and faster. By now, the task for which they tarried in the heavens was done. All the other flocks that they had played with in the morning had gone home. Seeing them dip down so fast, a baz fell in front of them like a stone dropping from a Himalayan cliff. Just when he had descended to the level of my birds, he opened his wings and faced them. This was no new tactic, for it had been used in the past by every baz in order to strike terror into a flock of pigeons. That it succeeds in ten cases out of eleven is undeniable, for when it happens, the terror-struck pigeons lose their sense of solidarity and fly pell-mell in every direction. No doubt that was what the baz hoped for, but our wily gay neck beating his wings flew without a tremor under the enemy about five feet, drawing the whole flock after him. He did it, knowing that the enemy never pounces upon a solidly unified group. But hardly had he gone a hundred yards forward when the second, probably Mrs. Baz, fell in front of the pigeons and opened her wings as her husband had done. But Gaynek paid no attention. He led the whole flock straight toward her. It was inconceivable. No pigeon had dared do that before, and she fled from their attack. 
Hardly had her back been turned when Gay Nick and the rest of the pigeons dipped and swooped as fast as they could go. But now they were hardly 600 feet from our roof, and then, as fate would have it, Mr. Baz, like a shell full of high explosives, fell again, and this time right in the middle of the crescent, and opened his wings and beak like forks of fire, crying and shrieking with fury. That produced its effect. Instead of one solid wall of pigeons, the flock was cut in two, of which one half followed Gaynek, while the other, smitten with abject fear, flew none knew whither. Gaynek did what a true leader does in great crisis. He followed that panic-stricken flock until his section overtook it, and in no time low, they had merged into a single group once more. Hardly had that taken place when Mrs. Baz, in her turn, descended like a thunderbolt between him and the other pigeons. She almost fell on his tail and cut him off from the rest, who now, deprived of their mentor, sought safety in flight, paying no heed to anything. That isolated Gaynek completely and exposed him to attacks from every side. Still undaunted, he tried to fly down to his retreating followers. Ere he had descended a dozen feet, down before him swooped Mr. Baz. Now that Gaynek saw the enemy so near, he grew more audacious and tumbled. It was a fortunate action. Had he not done so, Mrs. Baz, who had shot out her talons from behind, would have captured him then and there. In the meantime, the rest of my pigeons were beating on and had almost reached home. They were falling on the roof as ripe fruits fall from a tree. But one among them was not a coward. On the contrary, he was the very essence of bravery. It was Jahor, the Black Diamond. As the whole crowd settled down on our roof, he tumbled and flew higher. There was no mistake about his intentions. He was going to stand by Gaynek. Seeing him tumble again, Mr. Baz changed his mind. He gave up pursuing Gaynek and swooped down after Jahor. Well, you know Gaynek, he dipped to the rescue of Jahor, circling and curving as swiftly as a coil of lightning, leading Mrs. Baz panting after him. She could not make as many curves as Gaynek, no, not nearly so many. But Mr. Baz, who was a veteran, had flown up and up to take aim. This put Jahor in danger. One more wrong turn and Mr. Baz would have him. Alas, poor bird, he did the thing he should not have done. He flew in a straight line below Mr. Baz, who at once shut his wings and fell like a thunderclap of silence. No noise could be heard, not even the shadow of a sound. Down, down, down he fell, the very image of death. Then the most terrible thing happened. Between him and Jahor slipped, none knew how, Gaynek, in order to save the latter and frustrate the enemy. Alas, instead of giving up the attack, the Baz shot out his talons, catching a somewhat insecure hold of the intruder. A shower of feathers covered the air. One could almost see Gaynek's body writhing in the enemy's grip. As if a hot iron had gone through me, I shrieked with pain for my bird, but nothing availed. Round and round, higher and higher, the Baz carried him, trying to get a more secure hold with his talons. I must admit something most humiliating here. I had been so intent on saving Gaynek that I did not notice when Mrs. Baz fell and captured Jahor. It must have happened very swiftly, right after Gaynek was caught. Now the air was filled with Jahor's feathers. The enemy held him fast in her talons and he made no movement to free himself. But not so Gaynek. He was still writhing in the grip of Mr. Baz. As if to help her husband to grasp his prey more securely, Mrs. Baz flew very close to her lord. Just then, Jahor struggled to get free. That swung her so near that her wing collided with her husband's. The fellow lost his balance. As he was almost overturned in the air with another shower of feathers, Gaynek wrenched himself free from his grip. Now he dropped down, down, down. In another 30 seconds, a panting, bleeding bird lay on our roof. I lifted him up in order to examine his wound. 
His two sides were torn, but not grievously. At once I took him to the pigeon doctor, who dressed his wounds. It took about half an hour, and when I returned home and put Gainek in his nest, I could not find Jahor anywhere. His nest, alas, was empty. And when I went up to the roof, there I found Jahor's wife sitting on the parapet, scanning every direction of the sky for a sign of her husband. Not only did she spend that day, but two or three more in the same manner. I wonder if she found any consolation in the fact that her husband sacrificed himself for the sake of a brave comrade. Woo, I had to stop a few times on that because I was getting all choked up. There's a few heartbreaking moments in this book. One I mentioned on the last episode when Gaynek's mother got attacked by a hawk. She basically sacrificed herself for Gaynek. And now here, Jahor did the same thing. So sad. And, you know, who's the leader here? So Gaynek won the leader laurels. But I do believe Jahor, the Black Diamond, wins the award for bravery because he didn't have to go up there. But he did. Which I think shows his respect for Gaynek. And it's very interesting to understand how intelligent Intelligent these birds are. There's different types of pigeons. Gaynek is a crossbreed. His mother was a carrier pigeon and his father was a tumbler. And so the tumbler pigeons wait for their enemy to get close behind them and then they roll over their back like a somersault. And if you had listened to last week's episode, you'll understand that Gaynek had been healed of his fear by a llama at a llamasary. And after this incident, he is afraid to fly. In fact, he won't. He refuses to. Anytime there's a shadow in the sky, Gainek drops to the ground because he thinks that it's a bird above him. So his master takes him back to the Buddhist monastery to heal him of his fear again. And as the story goes, Gainek ends up serving in World War I as a carrier pigeon and does an exemplary job. It's no easy thing to be a leader. I like how the author says here, such is the price of leadership, the other name of self-sacrifice. When you're a leader, it's not about you. It's about setting everyone else up for success, which is what Gainek does. I like, too, in this, how he was elected the leader. It wasn't something that he battled out for dominance. It was simply on pure pigeon wit and pure pigeon instinct. They decided Gainek's our guy. I also like and hear how the author, whenever he talks about pairs of birds, he always introduces them as husband and wife or Mr. and Mrs. I don't know if that's because they mate for life. Here's an example of the endearing side that I'm getting at. I wouldn't necessarily call this leadership. I would call it self-sacrifice. But in this, we have the author and then Gond the hunter and then his friend Raja. The three of them are walking on a dirt road in the middle of the day and the sun is beating down on them on the outskirts of the jungle. Just then we came to a sight that I shall never forget. At our feet on the narrow caravan road, the air burned in iridescence. The heat was so great that it vibrated with colors. Hardly had we gone a few yards when like a thunderclap rose a vast flock of Himalayan pheasants. Then they flew into the jungle, their wings burning like peacock's plumes in the warm air. We kept on moving. In another couple of minutes flew up another flock, but these were mud-colored birds. In my perplexity, I asked Gon for an explanation. He said, Do you not see, O beloved of Felicity, the caravan that passed here was loaded with millet? One of their sacks had a hole in it. A few handfuls of millet leaked out on the road before the sack was sewn up. Later on arrived these birds and fed themselves here. We came upon them suddenly and frightened them to flight. But, O diadem of wisdom, I asked, why do the males look so gorgeous and why are the females mud-colored? Is nature always partial to the male? Gon made the following explanation. 
It is said that Mother Nature has given all birds the colors that hide them from their enemies. But do you not see that those pheasants are so full of splendor that they can be sighted and killed even by a blind man? Raja exclaimed, Can they? Gond answered, Oh, wary beyond thy years, no. The real reason is that they live on trees and do not come down before the earth is very hot. In this hot India of ours, the air two inches above the ground is so burning that it quivers with a thousand colors, and the plumage of the pheasant is similar. When we look at them, we do not see birds, but the many-colored air that camouflages them completely. We almost walked on them a few moments ago, thinking them but a part of the road at our feet. That I comprehend, resumed Raja reverently, but why did the females look mud-colored and why did they not fly away with the male? Gond answered without hesitation. When the enemy approaches and takes them by surprise, the male flies up to face the enemy's bullets, though without thought of chivalry. The female's wings are not so good. Besides, she, being of the color of the earth, opens her wings to shelter her babies under them, then lies flat on the ground, completely melting away her identity into that color scheme. After the enemy goes away in quest of the corpses of their already slaughtered husbands, the females run away with their babies in the nearest thicket. And if it is not too late in the year, and if their grown-up babies are not with them, the mother birds singly flop to the ground and lie there, making the gesture of protecting their young. Self-sacrifice becomes a habit with them, and habitually they put forth their wings whether they have any young ones with them or not. That is what they were doing when we came upon them. Then suddenly they realized that they were without anyone to protect, and as we still kept on coming down upon them, they took to flight, poor flyers though they are. So I always wondered why peacocks were so beautifully plumed, and I just thought maybe it was for a mating purpose, but when it's put into perspective how their vibrant colors blend into the kaleidoscope of colors that the heat distorts onto the ground, it makes much more sense. But when Gon explains that they fly up to face the bullets of the hunters without thought of chivalry, they're not doing it so much on preconceived thought as they are on instinct. That's what they were created to do, so they do it. That's it for this episode, and we'll catch you guys next week.